This is Cade Massey, practice professor at the Wharton School. On this week's highlight show, we talked to Kevin Cole, a longtime friend of the show, frequent guest. He is a football analyst, focuses on the NFL, has a great substack, has a great newsletter, unexpected points. We talk with Kevin about analyzing football in general, and we break into the NFL, the playoffs, and the front office coaching vacancies. Kind of a group discussion here, more than an interview, a fun time with Kevin Cole. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey with the whole crew. Adi Weiner is here. Shane Jensen is here. Eric Bradlow is here. And we are this week being in the first week of the playoffs NFL playoffs, we thought we'd talk NFL. Kevin Cole, longtime guest, longtime friend of the show. Kevin is a terrific football analyst. He's a terrific follow. He's got a substack going these days, which is super interesting, including, a, I, I don't know how often he kicks out this newsletter, but Unexpected Points newsletter, which is reliably interesting. We encourage you to follow Kevin in all these forms. But for the next half hour, we get to talk to him in in person, not quite in the flesh, but in person. Kevin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I was saying before, um, one of my favorite pods to listen to. And I can think of at least one moment this year where I heard something. And when you guys were talking with Luke Bourne and a lot of stuff that's going on with him and his different ownership where, you know, it's like an epiphany sort of type of situation. So it's one of those pods that brings about that. So hopefully. Okay, I hold on. We only, what, what epiphany was this? What epiphany was this, Kevin? Do you remember? Well, it was like a confirmation of what my process is a little bit slash epiphany. And I think you guys were asking him what he can do in a kind of process, structural sort of way to cut down on what bias may be. And he mentioned that he does not watch the games mm. and the, until after he's perused through presumably his proprietary uh, numbers that he has on that. Mm. And I do something pretty similar to that because I'm writing up a lot about what's going on with the early games during the late games, and I miss some of the the evening stuff. And you'd be very surprised, even for someone like myself, when you have all that information in front of you and you've dug through it first, and then you watch the game, you come away with a vastly different perspective. And that's probably why whenever my um, ideas differ from the crowd. You know, everyone yells at me to watch to watch the games, and I'm saying, "Hey, I I do, but I'm looking at something else first, which maybe you guys aren't looking at." Well, you know, hold on. it's really interesting. I I knew that was going to rile up some pennies. I want to hear Eric's about to jump in. I'm just I'm I'm curious. Do you think there's any? I think I might have pushed Luke on this in that conversation. Do we know that one of those sequences is better than the other, or is it simply that we always? We, t- we tend to watch the game first. And so you're, you and Luke are talking about doing it differently, still watching the game, but looking at numbers first doesn't mean that that's necessarily right. It's just that it's different than we usually do. Is that, is that fair? Is that, a, is that, and then Eric, why don't you jump in? Cause I think you might be on a related point. No, I, if related means exactly the same, then I guess they're related. I was just going to say, it seems like this is, you know, what Cade's just described and whether it's his home department of OID or my home department of marketing, that this is like a classic experiment someone would do, that you randomize the order of information people receive, and then you create some set of out-of-sample metrics, like you could look at 
point spread predictions or new rankings or whatever forecasts you're going to make. And we could take a look and see whether there's any change in, you know, whether it's a B or B a, I'm just wondering if someone has done that. I mean, let me just tell you, Kevin, to your credit, I guess it's the same thing. Um, I've served as editor and area editor of many journals. I never read other people's opinions before coming to my own. So I always let the data speak, which to me is the article. And then I watch the movie, which I'll or watch the show, which I'll call the reviews of the other people. And then I integrate <laughs> it into my own. I've never, ever, ever read someone else's opinions or seen a separate information source until I formed my own. But I don't well, know. Eric, Kevin, that's yeah. that's canonical. Good, good decision making, good judgment. This one feels a little I mean, I, and I love the analogy, really. And it's entertaining as hell. But this one feels different in that we don't know what we should give primacy. Right. I mean, yeah, right. They, they, yep. they are complementary sources of information. How do you think about it, Kevin? Well, I, I think about and this is I think the exact term that Luke used was a ground truth. And that probably sounds, you know, a bit overstated or a bit arrogant to some people to say, hey, we, we have the truth here, you know, down yeah, from the mountain my model. That's <laughs> coming, coming and what we're being told. But I do think that could be part of the idea of if you say a certain team offensively when it comes to the NFL and we, let's say we use expected points added because that's kind of like the new term. I mean, that is telling us somewhat of a truth and then you can get a lot of the contextual elements of that from from watching the game so that's why i would order it in that fashion i would order it in okay this is what we know about the game and now as we're watching it how may it tell us better how to apply what we've learned these kind of ground truth statistics if they say this offense added more points than the other offense well we can start to look to say okay how how many additional points of variance may have happened that aren't built into our numbers how many times is it a particular player that's doing something where if you took him or her out that might have a, an effect on things and it's just it takes a lot longer to watch a game and it's more um it is separated out piece by piece than it is when you're getting a whole number that's synthesizing all of a game at once so that's why i would always go I, you the could numbers also, first and then the game second you could also kevin come up with the opposite argument which is i could generate a bunch of hypotheses from watching the game and then i look to confirm or not those hypotheses using the ground truth objective data but i i i do see your point but one could argue the opposite order of scientific inquiry yeah, no, you could definitely go both different directions on that. But I think the uh, one other thing that I'll mention, this is separate from trying to figure out what the truth is or not. I do think it helps, at least for me, going in this order to maybe find things that are missing or errors or corrections that you may even have in your process and your methodology. And you're saying, oh, you know, I, I make this adjustment, but we're starting to, I'm finding as I'm watching the game that it doesn't really apply in the same way that I thought it did. So let me go in and, and, and make and make a and make a change where you could do that in the reverse order, but you'd have to to be kind of taking more copious notes, I think, during the process of watching and then going back into the modeling afterwards. I, I love the idea. I think that 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 makes kind of any order okay or, or palatable if you're saying, look, I'm going to try going this way, but I know I'm going to be wrong. No, no matter what direction I go, I'm going to have some misconceptions. And so I need yeah. to stay open and change. Um, the other thing that's interesting to me about this is that it's a great way to learn. Um, I, in, in recent, this is going to be a confession. I think I've made this confession on the show before, but you know, in football, I don't, of course, numbers are helpful to me after I've watched the game, but I process the game reasonably sophisticatedly and for a lay person. But if you put me in basketball, despite having watched basketball and played basketball my entire life or hockey, despite loving watching hockey, I'm missing a lot of what's going on, even after sitting there for the whole period or for the whole half. 
almost every time I go to an NBA game, at the at halftime, I'm like, can someone tell me what just happened? I just watched the whole thing, but I want to know the ground truth as Kevin or Lucas. I want to know like the fundamentals, like what, where, I think this is what I saw, but I mean, I really need help from the numbers, but because I'm just less sophisticated about that sport. Adi. I'm just, you know, listening to you guys discuss this and, and, and thinking about some of the work that I've done, is there enough information watching a full season's worth of Super Bowl of, of football to actually know the ground truth if such a thing existed? Meaning, can you really, can our eyes do it? Is there enough information there to figure out who's, who's really better than another team? Or is, that, or is the randomness so, so sufficiently large that we can't really do it and everything is always up to some uncertainty bound? Yeah, and to give to give a kind of a real example to toss around for that discussion is C.J. Stroud an elite? Like, is this rookie season that we just saw from him is that the ground truth for what we have with C.J. Stroud now, or is that just an exceptionally good year and mostly variance? I mean, just to follow up on that, just for that specific point, I mean, imagine some in uh, in statistics we often call them oracles, right? Um, but imagine there's a divine power, an oracle who'd watch the same season. Could that, uh, but can't, you know, is limited, right? So, so can't tell the difference between skill and, but just gets to see everything and is, is basically as smart as you possibly can. Could that person know where there's, where the Stroud really is great? Well, or, let me ask, I'll ask Luke, I'll ask Kevin a question. Kevin, right now, you're the, the Chicago Bears offer the number one pick to the Houston Texans. I say there's no chance at all that they would trade C.J. Stroud for the number one pick in the draft, and it's not even close. Do you agree with that? I, I agree with that, yeah. I mean, I think my my idea when it comes from the draft in that status versus when we have some actual evidence in the NFL is um, changes pretty quickly based upon what, what we see in the NFL. I mean, I, I think – if you even see this in the discussion, and part of this will be like Justin Fields and the discussion there for what they should do with him, which is kind of a whole different thing. It goes far beyond that now that we have three years of history with him. But I think what happens, at least in most people's minds, is you have the examples, some of the outlier examples, like maybe a Josh Allen or someone like that who struggles for a couple of years and then does well, which people kind of overweight in their minds when they're thinking about things versus the fact that most elite quarterbacks are pretty good pretty quickly um, you're not eliminated from being elite if you're not good quickly, but just by a probabilistic way of looking at it, it's a much, much higher chance if you are good right out the box versus a quarterback that we know nothing about. So, yeah, I would be I would say the Bears and this is, again, the thing thinking about their decision from last year where they had the number one pick. Right. I mean, they didn't have to take Bryce Young if they would have taken C.J. Shroud without making that trade back right there. That would have been the best possible place they could be in, I think, at this point in time, even though they have the number one pick going into this draft. The, the, but the challenge, though, is yes, but it's so context dependent. I mean, the, the guys that happen to be on good teams or with teams that with coaches that have ways of using their skills are just privileged. And we're not we're not natural as humans at decontextualizing performance. And even the experts, there are so many different factors. Even the experts would have trouble. I mean, You've got the the quarterback's play depends on the offensive line protection, the quality of the defense that's attacking him, the receivers that he has, the tight end that he has, the defenders that are on those tight ends and receivers, the running back distraction, how the coach deploys him in general and on that day. I mean, it's just 
it's an unlimited number of contextual considerations. I mean, how could we ever, even our models have a hard time with that and we train them up specifically to deal with it? I mean, I don't think it's, again, it's, we don't know, we don't have this truth, but we have a degree of certainty. It's just having the proper degree of certainty when we're thinking about this. And um, especially when we're talking about versus draft picks, when we have even a much, much lower degree of certainty there. So, I, I, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, and that becomes one of the big uh, knocks on when we talk about expected points. That is people say, well, it's a team stat. It, it incorporates all those different things that you're talking about. It's not only a team stat. It's the, the defenses you're playing, the schedule you're playing, the coaches that you have, all those sorts of things. So we, we can try to peel out as much as, as much as we can out of that. I try to make some adjustments based upon that. But generally, we're really just looking at, you know, past correlations and what we've seen with these quarterbacks in the past. And for the most part, again, for the most part, these guys are good to really to start off their their careers. And that ends up happening. So I think that's an important thing to consider when you have a great rookie season. All right. Let, let me while we have Kevin, let's talk, let's take him into a territory that he thinks about a lot and is super relevant right now. And that is front offices and coaching um, yesterday was Black Monday in the NFL, the day the day after the regular season's over. In fact, not all teams even waited for Monday to roll around before coaches started getting fired. GMs either getting fired or retained in some circumstances. Kevin's got opinions. In fact, he's been riling people up today about Vrabel. And I, I just want let me start by saying I saw Salfino jumped into your into your into your responses on one of your notes. I think let me try to remember what Michael Salfino said. He said. Look, man, uh, doesn't matter if coach is sophisticated analytically. Let the let those guys go play on personnel. What really matters is using those tools to get the right personnel in the building. And the coach, I mean, whatever. And these are now my words. You geeks can worry about fourth down policy all you want. That's secondary to what a coach does game day and getting a team ready for game day. Y'all are worrying too much about that. And that's a little bit more than Michael said, but it's close. And I thought it was provocative. I think it's it's theoretically true, you know, that what we know about coaches and the things that we can really judge them on, presuming that they're not the offensive play caller. And even then, I think people may have a little bit too much of like a results bias on whether or not someone's good as a play caller or a schemer based upon what has happened. Um, but I think he is right. But at the same point, a coach is the figurehead of an organization and a coach which, who ends up being successful is just naturally going to gain a lot more power. And that power is going to bleed through to personnel and other places. I mean, is there a true, I don't know, um, philosopher king coach who can say, you know what? Everyone respects me so much. I have all this power. Uh, we're in the NFL draft. I have an opinion that differs from the GM, but you know what? I'm just going to sit back and not say anything and not do anything and not pound the table for this trade, which may not be great by our trade value and so on and so forth. I, I just don't know if there's any coach who, who would actually fulfill those those responsibilities. Are there any particular vacancies around the league that you're especially interested in? And then I'm curious about everybody's opinion on what Josh Harris has done, new owner of the commanders, goes out in contracts with Bob Myers, who ran the Warriors through however many titles, four titles through that whole era, only recently retired there. He hires a basketball executive to help put together the team, the front office that he's rebuilding in Washington. What do y'all think, Kevin? And then what do the other guys think about this as well? These guys, some of these guys have been around Harris, have some opinions, basketball guys, whatever. This cross sport bit is interesting, but Kevin first. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the commanders because they would be one of the most interesting jobs for me. Uh, new ownership, 
uh, turnover of everything. You're going to have a new stadium in a few years. Number two overall pick in a year where we have two, at least as of now, we're thinking uh, top tier type of prospects, either one of whom would have probably gone first last year. But again, I'd rather have Stroud knowing what we know now versus those two. But let's think it, you know, Stroud was the guy that the Texans last year said, okay, fine, I'll take him. He's left. I'll take him. And look where they are right now, showing the kind of coin flip nature of these different, of these different picks. So about as good of a position you can be from that perspective. So I think that's very interesting. Ownership is good. Uh, I'm not quite as like sure necessarily about ownership, but I do think if you wanted to be even more certain of being successful as a head coach, uh, I would look at the chargers job with Justin Herbert there. I mean, anytime you can go into a, position and people have different opinions on how good Justin Herbert is. I mean, I think he is that good. I think he is like one of these young elite quarterbacks. Um, I don't have the information right in front of me, but the other day I looked through and I said, okay, how often does someone come in as a head coach with a, someone who's an established elite quarterback, how well do they do? And they almost always do well because they win games as having that type of quarterback. So that type of situation seems like that might even be a higher rung type of situation um, then going into the commanders and having the number two pick who could, you know, be Zach Wilson or someone like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Curious guys about the, the Meyer situation. Do y'all think this is a helpful thing? Is it, a, is it, is it just strange or what's your opinion on bringing Bob Myers in to help staff the new commanders front office? I, I just, I only have a couple sentences. I think great leaders can lead. I think people that can, in, you know, can listen and can uh, evaluate people. And I think those talents are transferable. So um, I think it's a very interesting choice. I think I, I think it has a very high probability of being successful. I like the idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I I have nothing against cross sports. I mean, I think you know, as as Eric pointed out, I think there's a lot of brilliant people in a lot of industries that are not you know necessarily restricted to that industry. Whether this particular hire, whether the per, the skills and and brilliance they showed in basketball transfers to football with a very different kind of payroll situation, that I am I'm fascinated by it. I have no idea though. But I actually have one comment on on Myers, and again, I'm always like the you know a little bit of contrarian sort of sort of guy when it comes to this. Everyone loves Myers, so we know where Kevin is. <laughs> so I, I, it just, again, this would just be like I don't know. I'm going to give one of these I don't know sort of situations. And when it comes to the Warriors, like let's face it, like 98 percent of what they did as a dynasty was take Steph Curry when he was available to them at the end of the you know at the latter half of the top ten, which you know which. That they got that uh, take Draymond Green in the in the second round of the uh, of the draft. There's only two rounds, right? So it's a very very low pick, and you know get Clay Thompson at a pretty good position too. Um, maybe in the middle of the of the first round ish sort of thing. So I'm sure there's lots of brilliance involved in that. But uh, you know when 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 Lakeup and the other guys over there were talking about their light years ahead of everyone. I mean maybe they are, but um, it though that helps a lot to have that sort of situation happen. And of course, they were the counter to. The Sam Hinkie, you tank and you draft the number one pick. They said, well, no, you just do what the Warriors do. You just draft, you know, the greatest players ever in positions where they normally aren't available. And, you know, that seems like less of a repeatable process to me. (laughs) Well, when you say it that way. (laughs) Lots to unpack there. We don't have enough time here, but maybe later when uh, we come back, we didn't know we're going to get Kevin to do an NBA take, but uh, we have we have room for NBA material Soon, we're almost going to be out of NFL material. Hey, before you go, uh, Matty Dats was taking shots at Tepper on the chat, and it made me realize there was another question. I would love to hear from you before you go. 
we were talking about how much we've learned about Stroud this year. Yeah. How much have we learned about Bryce Young? Uh, a decent amount. A decent amount. Again, you can't eliminate him from being good, but I think it's it's very troubling. But we do have some guys, Jared Goff probably being one of them in recent memory, who was god-awful um, on a smaller sample, though. He didn't really start playing until, I don't know, midway through the season and ended up being pretty good. But we don't have a lot of history for guys who were that bad init- uh, initially ending up being good. And I think at whether he's, you know, whether I can say whether he'd be good or not or not, uh, I'm not quite sure. But I would say that, like, whatever's people's perception on him vis-a-vis Stroud, I would lean towards, you know, have more heavily towards Stroud and heavily against him than maybe some people think, like, it'll be a clean slate going into next year. All right. Well, I, I, only, I only say I would like to see him in a different context. And it's it seems so odd to have gone from as highly regarded in a college football environment to as poorly regarded in pro football being the same guy. And we underestimate context and we underestimate within player variation. But again, a topic for another day. Kevin Cole, thanks for making time, man. We always enjoy conversations with you. Thanks for having me. Love the show. You can track him down. Kevin Cole's on Twitter. He has a terrific Substack called Unexpected Points. You can read him there. You can sign up for his weekly newsletter. That has been another Wharton Moneyball for the whole crew, all of whom were in here for the duration. Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradwell. This has been Cade Massey. Big thanks to Maddie. That's big thanks to Deion Simpkins. And a big thanks to you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>